Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning, everybody. You know, I love this new series that we're launching into, and I am so glad that you're going to be a part of it. But we live in a time of increasing polarization, don't we? And that's especially true when it comes to religious faith. As I've spent time studying our culture, I've come to realize that those who consider themselves a-religious have misunderstandings about religion in general and Christianity in particular. And the reason for that is often because either the church has failed to represent Christ well, or we have failed to give good answers to those outside the faith. But because of our marked differences in lifestyle, beliefs, morality, the tension is mounting in our country. There's a sociologist by the name of Peter Berger, and he famously wrote this, if Sweden is the world's most secular country, and India is the world's most religious country, America is increasingly a country of Indians being governed by Swedes. Interesting, huh? You know, I once got into this long conversation with a guy who was quite secular, and he had all kinds of questions he wasn't sure where to take. Like, how do we raise kids with a moral compass in our society? How do I deal with the death of my friend? What is my life all about? He was thoroughly unchurched, and the longer we talked, the more apparent that became, if you know what I'm talking about. And eventually, he asked the inevitable question. He said, so what do you do? (laughs) And when I told him I was a pastor, his eyes got really wide, and he said, well, I'll be damned. And I said, well, I hope not, but let's talk about that. And so we're launching into this new series called Misunderstanding. And it's addressing the differences between what our culture believes about Christians and Christianity and what those who are followers of Jesus truly believe. And there's a huge gap there, okay? There are big time misunderstandings. And as I've talked with people outside the faith, I've come to realize that they have some really good thought-provoking questions. And honestly, we don't always have easy answers to those questions, but that doesn't mean that we should shy away from them. I mean, we want to be a place where every person is respected and every question can be wrestled with in an open and honest fashion. And did you know our model for that is actually Jesus? When Jesus walked this earth, people with doubts came to him all the time. Once there was a man who wanted Jesus to heal his son. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, I I believe in you, but I don't. He said, help my unbelief. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, had doubts about the resurrection of Jesus. And at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus had appeared to them all, it says this, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And you know, Jesus never said to anybody, well, you doubted me, so I'm done with you. You're useless to me. No, no, no. He treated every person with sensitivity and truth and respect. And we want to do the same. So in the coming weeks, we're going to look at some thoughtful, legitimate questions that people have. Questions like, isn't the Bible anti-women? 
Or, you know, how can you believe in a loving God with all the suffering going on in our world? Uh, How can we trust the Bible when it seems to embrace institutions like slavery, things like that? And hasn't science disproven the Bible? Well, today I want to lay a foundation for this whole series by addressing a really basic question. It's the question, is faith irrational? Is the Christian faith irrational? In other words, can I believe in reason and logic and learning and yet still embrace faith in an unseen, supernatural, miraculous God? Is that possible? And the way I want to approach this is I want to take a look at four common notions about faith that I actually think are misunderstandings that get in people's way when it comes to believing in God. And then we'll talk about what that means for you and what that means for me. And then we'll move forward from there. So here we go, okay? These are four common misconceptions about the Christian faith. The first one goes like this. Faith means believing things without a good reason. You know, Archie Bunker once said, faith is believing something that nobody in his right mind would believe. Well, that's a pretty common misconception that's floating around in our day. In fact, there's a Harvard professor, Steven Pinker, who put it like this. He said, universities are about reason, pure and simple. Faith, believing something without good reasons to do so, has no place in anything but a religious institution. You know, from what I've heard from people on the inside, anybody who believes that universities are about reason, pure and simple, has never sat on a faculty committee, and they've never watched how decisions get made in universities. But what I want to focus on today is this definition of faith as believing things without a good reason. You know, one idea behind this goes like this. Well, faith means believing what authorities tell you to believe, regardless of what the evidence says. Whereas reason means believing what the evidence tells you, regardless of what authorities say. Well, let me start by just pointing out that for the first three centuries of its existence, the Christian faith, it grew and it spread remarkably in spite of the fact that it had no authority whatsoever. As a matter of fact, it was illegal in the Roman Empire throughout those first three centuries to become a Christian. It would be accompanied with persecution and even execution. So the church did not grow because authority was behind it. Often it grew because authority was opposed to it and at an unprecedented rate. Did you know that Christianity grew from around 1,000 believers in AD 40 to around 10,000 or more in AD 100 to 200,000 in AD 200 to between 5 and 6 million a century after that? I mean, that is staggering growth. And you got to ask the question, how did that happen? Well, we get a little glimpse into why it grew in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul was in Athens, which was historically the center of Greek philosophy, where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they were the pinnacles of human thought and logic and reason. And this is what we're told. It says, so he, Paul, reasoned. Okay, that word is chosen quite deliberately here. Didn't say he preached. It says, so he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace. And notice he's stepping out into the marketplace of ideas. 
And he did this day by day with those who happened to be there. It says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, Epicureans and Stoics, they were the intellectuals of that day. You know, we associate Epicureans with gourmet meals, but they were actually among the early believers of a common notion in our day that physical reality is all there is. Like there's nothing other than atoms. It's called physicalism. And one of their sayings, it went like this, nothing to fear in God, there is no supernatural. Nothing to feel in death, there is no afterlife. Good pleasure can be attained, evil pain can be endured. And they said, that's what life is all about. See, that's a very old idea, prominent in Athens. So those were the Epicureans. But then you had the Stoics, okay? And the Stoics valued reason and logic over emotion. And they believed that self-mastery, controlling your emotions, controlling your inner world was the ultimate value in life. And so the Apostle Paul and many others like him had these conversations in the marketplace of ideas where there were hundreds of variant philosophies presented. So the Christian explanation of life, it didn't grow by avoiding rational conversation on the basis of authority. It actually grew by inviting rational conversation, even when authority was opposed to it. The Christian explanation of life, how did we get here? What's the human condition? What is the purpose of our lives? That combined with a community of unprecedented love that valued all people equally, it created a new foundation for virtues like humility, forgiveness, and generosity that overwhelmed the ancient world in a way that all the money and all the authority and all the power of Rome could not stop. You know, it's worth noting that universities themselves, beginning with the first ones in Paris, then later Oxford and Cambridge, they were a Christian idea. They actually grew out of monastic communities, guilds of scholars who wanted to love God. In fact, the motto of Oxford to this day is this, the Lord is my light. That's taken from the Psalms. Then later came Harvard, Yale, Princeton. In fact, 92% of the first 138 universities were founded by followers of Jesus who wanted all people to be trained in logic and reason so that they could reflect and love God with all their mind. So whether you agree with it or not, Faith was not understood to be opposed to reason, but to be tested by reason. So it's a misnomer. It's a misconception to say that faith means believing things without a good reason. Okay, let's talk about a second misconception. This one is quite widespread in our day. It says you can't believe in science and believe in God. Okay, the idea behind this one is that in the old days, you know, people didn't know how to explain stuff. And so they would hear thunder and they would say, well, that's the God Thor. That's the God Zeus up there. Or they would watch as the sun crossed over the sky and they would say, well, that's the God Helios and his little chariot. But now we can explain things. And in fact, one day science will be able to explain everything. That's a common notion in our day that science is really the only grounds to know something. But the problem with that line of thinking is the fact that there are a lot of really critical questions that humans need to know to be able to live 
that science cannot answer. I mean, questions like, do people have equal worth? Or is hope more valid than despair? Or is there a purpose to life? You know, the claim that science is the only source of knowledge is not a scientific claim, right? There's no branch of science that has established that fact. It's a claim of faith. And maybe the ultimate mystery is, why is there something instead of nothing? Like, why does anything exist at all? Well, it turns out science cannot answer that question. And that can be kind of painful and humiliating to our egos because there's something about believing that we can know and do everything that tends to exalt us. There's an old story you may have heard of. It involves a group of scientists who go before God one day and say, God, we no longer need you. I mean, we don't need you to explain or create life. We can clone, we can transplant, we can create new life. In fact, we challenge you to a man-making contest and we'll do it just like it says in the Bible. God says, okay, you're on. And so the scientists bend down to scoop up some dirt and God says, oh no, you go get your own dirt. See, that's the question of why is there something rather than nothing? You know, some people think that Christianity is irrational because it involves miracles like the birth of Jesus at Christmas or the resurrection of Jesus. And, and science has proven that there is no unseen supernatural realm. And therefore, there's no such thing as miracles. But science has not proven that at all. You know, faith from a Christian perspective is not belief without evidence. It's based precisely upon the knowledge of God and God's ways. And I think that's especially important for us to understand in a day when so many people, particularly in the realm of politics, seem to just cling to beliefs based on very, very strong emotions. But throughout the history of the church, it's actually been great thinkers from Paul to Augustine to Aquinas to C.S. Lewis who have given the church its greatest and most important directions in its greatest moments of need. And it's precisely because knowing reality matters so much that restricting knowledge to the scientific method is such a mistake. One scholar, a man by the name of Ed Fesser, he's a philosopher, he writes this, it would be a little like saying because a metal detector has a greater success at detecting metal objects, coins, and so forth, that we ought to say, therefore, a metal detector can detect absolutely anything there is to be revealed. But a metal detector will not detect everything. It won't find tennis balls. It won't find woolen scarves. That doesn't mean they don't exist. That doesn't mean they're not there under the sand. It will detect what it is designed to look for. And science is that way. You know, Francis Collins, who's the head of the Human Genome Project and also heads up the National Institute of Health, he is one of the most respected, recognized, awarded scientists of our day. And he's also a follower of Jesus. And he put it like this. He said, science is the only reliable way to understand the natural world, but is powerless to answer questions such as, what is the meaning of of human existence. He says, we need to bring all the power of both scientific and spiritual perspectives to bear an understanding on what is both seen and unseen. See, Christians above all people have an obligation 
to fearlessly and humbly pursue the truth wherever it leads, in every sphere, every discipline, no matter what. Why? Because all truth is God's truth. And I just don't see Jesus saying, hey, don't read that book or don't ask that question or don't think that thought. Jesus believed deeply in truth. So the first misconception is faith means believing things without a good reason. That's not true. Second is you can have faith in science or faith in God, but not both. That's not true either. And here's a third misconception. And this one might be the most dangerous of all. It goes like this. You know, no one can really know moral or spiritual truth. So agnosticism or skepticism is the best response. You know, often in our day, faith just gets relegated to a matter of tradition, preference, opinion, but never to knowledge. You know, it's thought that we can know stuff about chemistry. We can know stuff about math, but not morality, not things about God, not that kind of stuff. And yet one of the most important and frequently used words in the Bible is the word knowledge. In fact, knowledge is at the core of Jesus's mission. Whether you think he's right or wrong. Jesus said this one time. He said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know, it's not an accident that the last part of Jesus's statement there, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That is written on more walls of more universities than any other statement from any other human being. Again, whether you believe Jesus was right or wrong, he claimed to know. He didn't go around giving dispensable advice and neither did any other great religious leader. Jesus claimed to know that what is most important is God and God's kingdom. Therefore, you can trust him. And this is not just tradition, folks. This is a body of Christian knowledge, and it has not been proven untrue. In fact, let's talk for a minute about what it means to know something. A couple of questions for you. First of all, can you believe something and be wrong about it? Okay, of course you can. My wife does it all the time. She would say the same about me, and she would be right. Of course, you can believe something and be wrong about it. Now, here's a second question. Can you know something? and be wrong about it. No, not by the definition of knowledge. See, knowing is something different than feeling very, very certain about it at the top of my voice. Right? To know something means I'm representing it, I'm thinking about it, I'm talking about it as it actually is, for good reason, not just based on a lucky guess. See, that's what it means to know. Now, what counts as knowledge is hotly contested in our day. Because to have knowledge means to have authority. So it's become kind of politicized. You know, we'll say to other people, don't impose your opinions on me. But we never say, don't impose your knowledge on me. Why not? Well, because knowledge is something that will impose itself on me, whether I want it to or not, whether I believe it or not. Dallas Willard once said, pain is what you experience when you bump into reality because reality is just there. Folks, we live in a day when the most important questions of life, like what is a good person? What is the purpose of my existence? They're considered to be subjective matters of preference, tradition, opinion, but not something that an intellectual person could ever claim to know. 
But you know, for most of the history of the human race, that was never the case. They believed that knowledge could be gained through education, knowledge of the most important topics in life. But in our day, when knowledge is desperately needed, it's become apparently unavailable. And that means for a lot of people, especially very bright, educated people, they end up struggling with despair and skepticism and cynicism and confusion and doubt. But by contrast, like a light coming through the gloom, the biblical writers insist that what is being presented is knowledge. Like Jesus said, you can know the truth. Peter said, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge. Knowledge and faith, they're not opposed to one another. The biblical writer, Luke, he said that he carefully investigated all that he researched. Okay, carefully investigated it so that we can know the certainty of what we've been taught. Now, this does not legitimate arrogant, dogmatic postures. Doesn't mean that Christians are untroubled by questions or doubts. But it also doesn't mean that we can't know anything. And it certainly doesn't mean that we can't find truth and meaning in life. A biologist by the name of David Barash recently wrote this. He said, we can now face the reality that life in general and our individual life in particular is inherently meaningless. Okay, time out. Like name a single empirical study in a peer reviewed journal in any branch of science that claims that we have discovered that life in general and our individual life in particular is inherently meaningless. Of course, you won't find it anywhere. And yet a sentence like that gets published like it's documented scientific truth. And a lot of people think, well, I guess somebody found out something and it crushes the human soul that needs to know. You know, there's a profound little phrase about knowledge your mom used to use. Your mom would say to you, you know better. You know better. It's a fascinating phrase, right? You shouldn't have stolen that candy. You shouldn't have bit your sister. You shouldn't have lied. You know better. See, your mom didn't say, well, you believed better or you prefer better. No, she said, you know better. And she was absolutely right. As a matter of fact, if you can, call her this afternoon and say, Mom, you were dead right. You know, in our day, people avoid moral judgments, you know, often out of a well-intended desire not to come across as arrogant, judgmental, dogmatic, authoritarian, but also because of this prevailing idea that it's always wrong to make moral judgments. But a British philosopher named Mary Midgley actually wrote a book called Can't We Make Moral Judgments? And it addresses this misconception that we can have knowledge about things like chemistry, physics, geology, but matters of morality, they're just matters of opinion. Like you have yours, I have mine. It's related to our culture, our preferences, our upbringing. So it's always wrong to impose your moral judgments on other people. Well, the problem, of course, is that the statement, it's always wrong to make moral judgments, is itself a moral judgment. <laughs> right? It refutes itself. If it's true, it can't be true. And we simply cannot live or choose or, or raise kids or have a political society or navigate our way through life without moral knowledge. I mean, knowing right from wrong is absolutely essential to our humanity.
Michael Cohen, someone whose name was in the news a lot a while back, after confessing to his crimes of wrongdoing, he was asked by an interviewer, if you could go back to your old self before you started this long string of wrongdoing, what would you say to yourself? And his answer was very striking. He said, I would say to my old self, what were you thinking? You knew better. You knew better. See, it's possible to know something but deceive our minds, to distract or forget in such a way that enables us to do what we want as if we really didn't know what we truly know. The Apostle Paul, who although he lived 2,000 years ago, was quite brilliant about the mind and the nature of knowledge. He said this about the human race. He said, for although they knew God, they knew. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, every mom has spoken those words to her child. You know better. You know better. Folks, we know. You know, this week, by way of application, you might ask yourself the question, where am I not living up to what I know? Where might my future self come back to me and say, you knew better, you knew better. In my finances, my family, my words, my work, my money, my sexuality, search your heart. Where do you know better? Now this leads to one last misconception. It's prevalent inside and outside the church. And it goes like this. Christianity is about being right. Christianity is just about being right. Now, don't get me wrong. Being right is a good thing, right? It helps you navigate through reality. But it's actually kind of a dangerous thing. Do you ever sit next to the kid in class who is right all the time? And some of you may have been that kid. A really smart guy once remarked, it's actually kind of hard to be right a lot and not damage other people with that. And one of the amazing things about Jesus is that he was right all the time but he didn't damage other people with it. And don't get me wrong, he often inflicted pain with his words. Oftentimes that was very deliberate, but they were never the words of a puffed up smart guy ego who belittled people with a lower IQ. I mean, he could be around children, slaves, beggars, lepers, the uneducated, the illiterate, and he never made them feel slow or dumb. And one of the reasons I believe Christianity to be true is because it understands the dynamic, the relationship between knowledge and love so profoundly. The church at Corinth was filled with people who suffered from the smartest guy in the room syndrome. And these are the words that Paul wrote to them. He said, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Ooh, that's good. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Man, there's a world of knowledge in that sentence right there. And he ends with this, but whoever loves God is known by God. In the end, God will not ask me how much I knew. He'll ask me how much I loved. And you too. See, we were made to love. We know this. We know better. The church corporately and Christians individually, we're not here to show everybody we're right. We're here to show everybody 
God's love. Never forget that. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that we can know that Christianity, the Christian faith is not irrational. That we have good reason for our faith, that all truth is your truth and science rightly understood does not contradict that. That we can know moral and spiritual truth and we can live our lives with that knowledge. God, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity in this series to talk about some tough issues and I pray that we would do it with grace. Talking about the biblical view of women and slavery and those types of things, challenging issues. God, I pray, especially for us as believers, that we would recognize it's not about us being right. It's about us demonstrating your love. And maybe you're listening to me and you're still wrestling with doubts. I would encourage you to stick around throughout this series. And whenever you're ready, whenever you're convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, just call out to him, say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in you because that's all it takes to get forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. You can do that right now. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that we can wrestle with the truth because all truth is your truth. And you will lead us to the knowledge of the truth. And that will give us joy and peace like nothing else. It's in your name we pray. Amen.